Welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. On today's episode of Credit Hour, we speak with Associate Professor Jeff Wesner from the USD Department of Biology and break down the numbers behind the COVID pandemic. Jeff, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing fine. We were in Colorado uh, in the fall, and I was on sabbatical, and so we're back in South Dakota, and, and uh, sort of happy to be back at work. <laughs> well, we're happy to have <laughs> you back for sure as well. Um, you know, first of all, just could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at USD? Yeah, I'm an associate professor in biology, and I'm an ecologist. Uh, means I, for me, that means I study rivers, streams, and lakes, and the things in them, fish and insects and uh, water quality. Um, and a lot of our work is just, just based on conservation or just trying to understand how, how a stream works. Well, maybe before I ask um, what you're currently researching here at USD, what were you doing in Colorado? Uh, that was on sabbatical, and I was working in Boulder, Colorado, and we were I was working with uh, a group called NEON, which is uh, stands for National Ecological Observatory Network, which is uh, uh, just a continental-scale um, observatory network. Think of things like we're, we're able to track weather across the U.S. really well because we have lots of different monitors all over the place. And this is the same thing, but for ecological data, things like fish population and um, you know, tooth flux and temperature, precipitation and all those kinds of things. They collect thousands of variables. Um, and so I was there to, to essentially learn about what they do and uh, try to incorporate that and bring that back to, to my research here at USD. Um, excellent. Well, one thing we wanted to talk to you today is some of your research related to COVID-19. Um, you know, first of all, could you just give us maybe a little bit of background of how you got involved in this type of research? Yeah, it's probably odd that uh, a fish biologist should be um, studying COVID, and I agree it is kind of odd. <laughs> um, I, as, as part of my research, I'm also a, uh, I teach statistics here at USD, um, a form of statistics called Bayesian statistics. And so I do have some expertise a, a little bit in, in that area. And so initially when we kind of had to go home from uh, work, we were working at home and my wife is in public health. So she teaches in the master of public health program. And they were early on in the pandemic, they were working on a survey of um South Dakotans and just how South Dakotans are responding to the pandemic and what kinds of things they'd like to see and, you know, where do they get their news and that kind of stuff. And I just, we were both at home, we were talking about the project and, and, and she had some data and we thought, Hey, I, you know, we could plot this and we could analyze it perhaps this way, just kind of throwing ideas around. Um, and so I hadn't planned on being involved in that necessarily, but uh, it just kind of worked out because we were working together on it, and they had some other epidemiologists on the project. And um, um, so that got me into that part of COVID uh, research. And then some of the people who were on that project were contacted by the state because they needed help. Um, this was back in March, needed help, you know, trying to predict the future. And so, so we had epidemiologists, and because I'd been working with them, they asked me to join just to, to see if we could have any, you know, kind of, a little bit of modeling um, insight, whatever could work for to help them. So it was a big team, and I was part of that. You know, Jeff, I I wonder, 
so much of of COVID, I I think what's been difficult about it has been the unknown, right? And it's been hard to predict. Yeah. Um, you know, both what would work against, um, in, in terms of public health strategy, what would work against, you know, controlling the virus. Um, sometimes it seemed like maybe we shut down too early, maybe not fast enough, and others. Um, just yeah. with your experience and knowledge, maybe throughout this process, what have you learned personally about this virus that makes it so unique and makes it so difficult um, to control from a public health standpoint? Yeah, you know, well, I think my ecology background informs a bit of, of how I thought about this virus. And the similarities to lots of science are simply that we can't measure the things we really want to know. For example, I study things like fish diets, and in a perfect world, I could just go ask the fish what they ate today, right? <laughs> and I could get them to get the answer, and they would be truthful with me, and I could have a fish diet. And um, that's why we have modeling to begin with, and that's why modeling COVID is a challenge. So I think the thing that stood out to me um, was that the data we really want to know is whether we as an individual will get this virus. We want to know exactly when we'll get it. We want to know exactly what will happen to us. And we, and if we can know those things, that's how we can prevent it from spreading. So, you know, if I knew in the next hour I was going to get the virus, even if I couldn't prevent myself from getting it, then I know exactly when that one virus particle comes in, then I can start isolating and that will stop me from spreading it to others. And that's the data we want. And unfortunately, the data we have is, you know, if we have symptoms, maybe we go get a test. That test comes days after we've already been shedding the virus. And, uh, you know, once we get the test, it takes a few days to get the results. Then those results are reported. And so the whole delay is essentially a delay in, you know, uh, it's an opportunity for that virus to continue spreading. And so that was the real that continues to be the very, very difficult thing is to try to use data that we have that we know reflects the past and are only partially reflecting um, infection rates. How do we use that data to, you know, predict the future? And that's that's a that's a monstrous problem. You know, Jeff. I again, I know that this is so difficult to kind of analyze, especially um, when there's not much, I guess, time to reflect. But you know, I think about just how COVID impacted South Dakota. I mean, we had. Um, you know, like a, a initial surge that I think gained a lot of media attention, um, you know, at the Smithfield, like meatpacking plant. Then it seemed to maybe die down and we weren't, you know, the, the hardest hit area. Then it, then it seemed to ramp back up. Why do we, I guess, see these um, dramatic swings or cycles? Is that just like the news kind of amplifying um, the statistics and trends at different point? Or, it, or is there a real kind of fluctuation with how the virus operates and, you know, how it impacts the population. Yeah, you know, a good answer to that is not something that I really have. I mean, I, I, that, I think that gets at several things. I mean, like at, at its core, we just don't have and didn't have in the summer, you know, we didn't have vaccines. We did not have a way to take something and stop the virus spread. So we were relying solely on our own human behavior. And, you know, no matter where you come from, I mean, that's a pretty risky thing. Relying on a, on a bunch of humans to all do the right thing at the same time is always a pretty risky bet, <laughs> you know. And especially when the consequences of, of, 
of not doing that or not being able to do that. I mean, people have to work and people have to, you know, have, their lives have to go on and there are, there are competing risks. It's not just the virus, it's your livelihood. And when those competing risks merge, you know, I'm speaking completely beyond my expertise, but when those competing risks merge, then you get, you know, you, you get the kind of human behavior that, that can lead to a virus spreading. So, that, I, I see that as, as basically we had a, we had a major focus and and we we changed a lot of our society, you know, around this virus, um, and it's just hard to do that for a year. It's, it's just very very difficult to do that. And so South Dakota was a very bad case, and I don't know why exactly South Dakota was a was was so uniquely bad, especially in the fall. Um, but it's also true in other places when we were in Colorado, you know, the rates were not nearly what they were in South Dakota, but they were still rising at the same time. Um, and you know, because we kind of just started going back to life and hoping that the mask would save us alone. And I think that that gets in the way of a lot of, a lot of other, other things that could prevent the virus. You know, Jeff, one thing I, I think about when, you know, we talk about the virus is just the asymptomatic, um, you know, spreaders you, you always hear about, people who may, you know, just have a slight cold or maybe they're just slightly tired. Maybe they don't feel anything at all, right? And they can kind of go about their daily lives, but then they, they spread the virus. You know, I, again, I know that you're kind of a, a data scientist and it's probably hard to make um, and draw conclusions just from kind of the raw data, especially as you continue to gather it. I mean, do yeah. you feel qualified at all to, to hazard a guess? I mean, on on the spread, do you, and, and I don't know how, how, how your research looks at it, but you know, the, the idea of asymptomatic, um, you know, spreaders, is that really, you think, kind of what drives this? Or, or how, how has the virus, again, been so um, able to just quickly spread like it can? Yeah, I mean, that is a big, that's a big part of it. And I can't give a number for, you know, the proportion of the population that's asymptomatic. But that also comes back down to the testing problem that, that we were talking about, which is, you know, it's, right now, it's a bit easier to get a test than it was two months ago, and it was easier then than it was two months before, and it was very difficult early in this in this virus, especially, to get a test. You know, um, we were we were essentially restricting those tests only to people who had symptoms, and in many cases in South Dakota, I believe we were restricting them mostly to people who had shown up at a hospital. Um, so that's only getting testing data for you know almost past the point that you need it, uh, at least from a monitoring standpoint. And so we know, for example, if, if there are 100 tests that are positive, especially under that scenario in which most people who are getting tested are only those that are symptomatic, if we have, let's say, 100 tests that are possible, all we know about that, that number, 100, is that it's the low estimate of who's carrying the virus at that time. So it's somewhere between 100 and something above that. And, you know, South Dakota has 800 and uh, 800 some thousand people in the state. And so we go from 100 to, I mean, you know, theoretically 800,000, if not how many people would actually have it. But that's, that's where the uncertainty lies. And then our then we have to figure out, okay, how many of those people, if we had 100 today and we had 200 tomorrow, that's a doubling. Does that mean double the number of people had it? How much are we undercounting? Are we undercounting by 10%? By, you know, are we undercounting by tenfold? Are we undercounting by 30-fold? We just don't know. And that's where the, 
all we know is that there are certainly lots of, you know, a decent amount of people who have are asymptomatic who are also spreading that virus. And we have to somehow, I mean, we have to somehow estimate that, you know, and doing it in South Dakota is difficult. And so doing it in any in, in individual place is difficult. So, you know, in, in that case, you rely on, on, on just other measures or other, um, other data, data elsewhere and, and do the best you can with that. Jeff, I find that really interesting, just the idea that kind of the lack of testing um, impacted our ability to just know what was going on in the early days of the pandemic. Um, are, are you going to be able to like work backwards, if that makes any sense? Like, will you be able to take a snapshot, you know, today, um, see what the you know numbers are and, and essentially be able to, you know, hazard what was happening in South Dakota in the early months of the pandemic, or will we, or will that always sort of be a mystery as far as how much community spread there was um, in terms of those early days? Yeah, you know, I, maybe. I mean, I think we, I think you could do that. And here's here's how I would approach it: is well, but the way that we approach that um, in our research was essentially to to give up on trying to track and predict the number of positive cases that were reported. Instead, um, we we began tracking the number of hospitalizations and the number of deaths. And for a couple of reasons. Um, one is when you know when testing is so sporadic, like we just talked about, it's it's just a very hard measure to get your head around. Um, and the models that that people may be familiar with now that maybe they weren't before, you know, models for predicting disease, disease spread are largely things like an SIR model. And it's conceptually pretty simple. It just models the number of people that are susceptible to the disease, that's S, and then the number of people that get infected, that's I, and then R is the number that have recovered um, and or, or died from the disease. And what it what it does is, is if you have data on the number of people, the proportion of the population that is infected, and you have that over time, um, you can fit this model and and hope that you can get a good a good prediction. That and the downside is the testing that we had was not the proportion of the population that was infected; it was simply the proportion of the population that decided to get a test and tested positive. And like we talked about, we knew that that was a vast undercount. And that makes these models then less useful. It doesn't make them impossible. You just have to do some different things and make assumptions, but it makes them less useful. And so what we decided to do instead was to step away from that approach, which a lot of people were doing at the time and doing good work with it, by the way. Um, and instead, we had in South Dakota, one thing that, that I liked was not all states were reporting hospitalization data every day and not all states were reporting death data every day. Um, and what we knew was, you know, the reason we're worried about this disease is that people do end up in the hospital at higher rates and they do end up dying at higher rates. I mean, one, one counter world is that there's a virus that spreads that nobody ever gets sick from. And then perhaps we're not as worried about that one as we, as we are COVID. And so we wanted to track what are the, what are the things that we really are worried about happening. And we were trying to predict cases so that we could tell the state how many hospital beds we would need, right? And, and so because we had actual hospital data, 
we decided to use that instead. And so a long way around to get back to your question is I do think I I do think you could use things like the hospital trends at the time and the death trends at the time as more reliable indicators of what the actual spread would be and then and then make an estimate of just how under tested we were at any at any given time. And in fact that's what that's what several others have done um, on a national scale is to use hospitalization data to kind of work backwards into infection rates rather than using infection rates to work forwards into predicting hospitalizations. No, that's that's really interesting and it makes a lot of sense. So the the idea is that because you can more accurately capture hospitalization rates, um, people dying of COVID, that, that's easier to actually identify. If you can figure out how to extrapolate that data um, and figure out what that data is sort of telling us about the overall numbers, that then becomes useful from like a public health standpoint? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, thinking, thinking through the future, you know, when we will continue to analyze this this pandemic, I mean, we're still in the middle of it, but we will obviously continue to analyze it for decades and um, using those kinds of tools so that the next time this happens and we are scrambling to test and we're scrambling to figure out how to how to predict, you know, hopefully we can use the lessons learned here to be a little bit better next time, you know, a little bit better prepared. That's, that's I think, all you can really hope for there. Well, and Jeff, I think about just... You know, like I remember I was kind of thinking about this just a few days ago, like when the pandemic became very real. And I remember reading, um, I think it was from the University of Oxford. They, they came out with a report like in the very early days of the pandemic that estimated death rates. And I mean, I haven't gone back and, and looked at how accurate the report was, but it, just in terms of like, you know, overall deaths they predicted, I think it was pretty accurate, right? They kind of had a sliding scale of if, you know, we took no actions, if we took some preventative actions, if we took all preventative actions. And, you know, at the time when they were floating numbers around, like, you know, 250,000 people would die by the summer. Um, you know, those numbers seem crazy. And now, unfortunately, you yeah. know, we, we far exceeded them. Um, from From your, I guess, knowledge of just how the data works and, and maybe just being able to kind of in your head extrapolate it, do some like napkin math. Is this kind of what you understood was going to happen? I mean, at what point did you just looking at the data go like, oh no, there's like no way we're going to be able to avoid, you know, some of the heartache involving this? Yeah. You know, um, we, we, we did that. And, and in fact, that's the, one of the, one of the modeling techniques that, um, that, that we ended up using is called a, a Bayesian modeling. And um, the, the one thing that you can do with that is if you have prior information, things like another place has undergone, already undergone a peak of, of this virus, a peak of hospitalization or death or um, cases, you can use that information to inform your own model. So we don't know the future, but we know someone else's future, <laughs> if, if that makes sense. Um, because they already had it. So in this case, what we did um, in, in trying to predict how many hospital beds are going to be needed in South Dakota is we looked at New York City, which is an odd place to compare to South Dakota, um, except that, uh, I don't remember the dates, but you know, in, in April, maybe late April, they had already reached a peak, you know, and, it, and they were one of the worst places in the world, um, 
for for COVID hospitalizations. They had you know thousands of nurses flying in to help with that. And so what we could do is that while there while there are very big differences between New York City and South Dakota, you know, we could we then at least knew how what their peak was. So on the peak day, what proportion of that of that city was was hospitalized? And we can use that to, uh, you know, essentially take our own predictions and say, all right, if the same proportion of South Dakota's population is hospitalized, how many beds would that be? And, you know, we, we do that with a modeling exercise. There's uncertainty. We have a large range of possible numbers that include higher than New York and lower than New York. But they don't. They, it gives us a way to say, all right, maybe it's not going to be 30,000 beds. Maybe it's going to be more on the order of 5,000 or 1,000 beds that we might need at any time or even or lower, right? And, and that's important to know whether you're going to need an order of magnitude larger uh, hospital beds than you have or whether you're just going to need to increase the capacity by a smaller amount. Um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, uh, I'm not, I, can't, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but um, uh, no, I, working I, I, in specific state yeah like you know that's the way that we would use other information to help help guide our model you know jeff to just you know kind of transition here i guess um i mean what can you tell us about the numbers now i you know i think everyone's kind of holding their breath from the holidays hoping that um you know that that didn't oh i i guess quicken the pace of, of the spread and things like that have, have you seen any trends that would indicate um that the holidays you, you know did spread the virus more quickly, or were we we able to avoid that? Let me just, let me pull up the plot I made this morning. Um, Yeah, you know, like I mentioned, we're we're tracking the hospitalizations and deaths, and um, this is, it's, it's easier to see on a visual, I think, than to describe it. I'll try to describe it. Where we are today, um, in South Dakota, um, the number of people currently hospitalized uh, uh, we're tracking is, is around on the order of 23 to 24 people per 100,000 people. So that's probably not a very helpful statistic at the moment. Um, that is down from the peak, though, of fall, where we were um, one of the highest in the world. Um, at that time, it was around 60 people per 100,000. So that's about a rate you know, currently, uh, that, uh, you know, a third of where we were at our peak. And so do you, I guess, anticipate, I know it's hard to make these predictions, but I I guess, and and they talk about these surges. I mean, they, they kind of vary over time. Right. But I guess, are are we, is it safe to say that we're past the surge? I I, I hate to even like phrase it that way, but, um, I, I mean, what do what do you think the data is telling us as far as what can we can expect going into the spring and maybe even summer? Yeah, it, I I am hesitant to make any kind of prediction like that. You know, I I did not. I I think everybody was predict, predicting a second wave and second surge, but exactly how big that ended up being um, was not it's not in our predictions when we were in summer. And so, while it seems like I it, I hope we are past the worst point here. You know, I saw that also in July, and uh, that's it. That's it. A number of people, and so I. I'm hesitant to say it's over. Um, I think, I think whether it's over or not, 
you know, or whether we've reached our peak is essentially up to us. And um, certainly, you know, getting vaccination in South Dakota, I think, is doing a good job so far relative to other states and getting vaccinations. Um, that does nothing but help. And, and it just kind of remains to be seen. I will say, you know, all of this, all of this is, is tricky because our, our baselines are changing over time. So when I said, you know, South Dakota is down and say hospitalized, number of people hospitalized, um, and we're lower than our peak by a third today in South Dakota is still, um, higher than it ever was in the spring or summer in terms of the number of people hospitalized and the number of new deaths uh, appears to be uh, holding approximately steady at about eight deaths per 100,000 people. That also, aside from the fall peak, that also would have represented the highest death rate that we had seen um, in, uh, in the spring or summer. Um, and so, you know, it's down relative to where it was, but where it was was so bad that just being down relative to that is not necessarily good. It's certainly not a reason to to stop doing the kinds of things that we're doing, um, that we're trying to do to, to prevent this virus spreading. You know, Jeff, is there anything about data science um, that you wish other people maybe knew that would, you think, help them maybe understand, you know, the difficulties in sort of analyzing what is happening with, with COVID, the predictions that scientists are kind of forced to make. Is there anything that you can tell us about the process or um, just the way it's done that you think it would be helpful for us to know um, so we can sort of have a better understanding of how just these numbers come together in the process of, by which they do? Yeah, I'll try to think of one, just one thing. Um, you know, I I think one of the, I mean, one thing that is, apparent to me, I think after, after, um, working on, on these data for the state is, um, I think in many cases, we just assume that if we have the data, we have the answer. And if that were the case, then we really wouldn't need modelers and statisticians and epidemiologists. I mean, we could just look at the data, right? Um, and I think that gap, like I mentioned between the data we have, and the questions we want to know is, is it's not a trivial gap. And the reason that you see so many different projections from different modeling groups and, you know, they might all be within a certain range, but everybody predicts a little bit different is simply because, you know, we all have to make really hard decisions um, in, in jumping between that gap of the data we have and the question we want to answer and everybody's going to make a little bit of a different assumption. Um, and I think, you know, part of data science that I, that, that you don't think about when you're, when you're uh, seeing it is you often, we just see the result and almost all of the work is actually in the process and in trying to make the best decision on, you know, on, on little decisions, um, the best decision on, for example, um, you know, do we use a viable model or a logistic model? And uh, do we allow, you know, allow the center of it to vary or should we um, use a Poisson to speed? It's all these little things. And I don't expect those to make any sense to anyone, but these little decisions that are, there's no textbook that says you have to use this and then you click that and then you do that and then you get a result. You know, it's all about communication and um, 
making compromises and um, kind of like, I guess it's all about everything that, that happens in real life versus the thing that we try to, um, try to um, idealize. Um, no, that makes sense for sure. Jeff, I, I've got one more question for you. Um, and to sure. just totally veer wildly in a completely different direction. I know you're a data scientist. You traditionally work with um, biology. We've got you working on COVID right now. And so I'm going to ask you to put on another hat and become a philosophy professor for just one second here. At this point in your life, what do you know for sure? Well, that's a good question. Um, that's not something I've ever thought about. So I guess what I know for sure is that I've never thought about that question. Um, I think, <laughs> I think I, I, I've always, I've always liked what I've liked about science, uh, is, is what I've liked and what is challenging about science is that you never actually know any, you never know the, the answer. I mean, the purpose of doing this stuff, uh, is that no one has done it. And because of that, you just don't know. You never really know if you're right about something. You know, you know, you you know if you're closer than others, but you don't. You never know if you're right. So, um, I never know for sure if any of these things are, are going to end up being helpful, or if any any of them are, are going to be um, uh, good predictions. Not just COVID, but you know, even if I predict the effects of fish on insects. I mean, I. You, you're always dealing in uncertainty because you're always asking kinds of questions in that arena that have never been answered before. Um, otherwise, you wouldn't need to do the science if we already knew knew all of that for sure. So that's how I would answer that question. That's a very difficult question. Um, well, Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time this morning to speak with us. Thank you so much for the work that you are doing. Um, I mean, I think the pandemic is full of stories of people who just kind of stepped up to the plate and um, tried to figure it out. And you certainly are one of them. So we all at USD are just thankful and appreciative of the work that you're doing for the state. I really appreciate that. Thanks. Thanks so much. And, and I've been working with lots of other, other really good people at USD to get this done. Yeah. Thank you, Jeff.